This is Science Moab, a radio show exploring the science and learning about the scientists from the Colorado Plateau. I'm Christina, and today we explore the ways in which plants interact with one another, and how those interactions, both positive and negative, have ripple effects that can structure whole ecosystems. It's a good show. Stay with us. I was never the kind of person who's like look at one plant for you know decades. I, I was just more interested in how like why does one thing interact with another thing? Why do two things associate together? Why are these three plant species found in this area, but found in a different area? It's a completely different assortment. Those are the questions I was most interested in. Today on Science Moab, we are talking with Dr. Alex Filizola about plant interactions in deserts. Dr. Filizola is a community ecologist, studying the ways that plants interact with one another out in ecosystems. His work focuses on the many and surprising ways that plants living side by side can have positive effects on one another. These effects can play a big role in how ecosystems are ultimately structured and how we manage and restore the systems around us. We begin our interview with Dr. Filizola describing what it means to study plant interactions. The simplest way, I guess, is how just two plants inhabit the same area and what happens when they inhabit into the same area. And it can include everything from positive things, negative things. Usually it's something very simple, just such as providing shade because it grew a little bit taller than the plant that's growing next to it. I try to look at different species, particularly one that's considered a dominant, like a, a shrub that's pervasive in the landscape. But I also do simplistic things of like within the same species of how does an older individual affect a younger individual. Is every plant interacting with every other plant that's out on the landscape? I would, I would say yes, yeah. Um, it, it depends on, there's like a, a zone of influence. So as you get a certain distance away from a particular plant, so you've got two plants, as one gets further away from the other, the effect slowly decreases to a point where it's not affecting it at all. But there's always some level of effect within a certain radius. Usually it has this relationship of like super affected when close to one another, and then it just kind of crashes as it gets beyond distances, maybe like 30 to 50 centimeters. My favorite example is always a shrub can grow in the desert because it has natural tolerances to growing in the desert, uh, and it allows other plants to grow underneath it that can't or are less tolerant. And usually the simplest one is it just provides shade. And the sun's hot, desert's hot, and the more shade that it provides, the more likely it is to encourage that plant to grow that's growing underneath its canopy. They've shown that some species can grow in some really wild places there's this one study that it did in the high Andes of Peru and, you know, 4,000 meters above sea level, so it's huge, high elevation. They showed dandelion can grow up there as long as it grows in another plant. And so it's kind of cool to see these, like, positive interactions extending particular plant species in areas that otherwise they can never be found. And when you say positive interaction, do you mean an interaction that is good for the dandelion? Or is it also good for the shrub or whatever plant the dandelion is growing in? 
usually I always look at it as how one plant positively helps another plant, so just one direction, but there's a lot of research that does it in both directions, both positive for the both plants involved, which does happen actually, especially if you had a shrub that helps a particular plant species that's thorny, and then that shrub is less likely to be eaten by grazers or herbivores, and so there's that bidirectional thing that's happening between the two positive interactions. But what I've noticed is that a lot of my research is it, it doesn't necessarily benefit the larger plants. So you have a shrub, it helps the annuals growing underneath it, but they might sop up too much soil moisture or have some other effect. And that usually ends up negative for the, uh, the, dominant, the dominant shrub. Are there other examples that aren't just about a plant creating more shade or just being a habitat that another plant can grow in? Yeah, so that's what I was trying to propose a lot with my research is that what are all the different ways in which one plant can possibly help another. And so shade one was an important one, increasing soil moisture because these shrubs have fairly big tap roots that can pull up water. They also can, by providing uh, this canopy, it can increase the humidity in the area. These are kind of the more I guess the simpler ones where it's just you have a shrub and it does something to the physical environment and that therefore benefits the plants that are near it. But there's some also cool ones that are indirect. So you have a shrub, like I mentioned with the herbivores, it's super thorny. So if you had a herbivore, it can't really get to the plants growing in the canopy. And so that plant doesn't get eaten. So that's another type of positive interaction. You see that a lot with ambrosia. It's so kind of branchy and all over the place that it's hard for plants to other animals to get underneath it and plants can grow well in their canopy. Another one that's growing and what my lab used to do a lot of is how you have a, a particular shrub. It has lots of a giant floral display so it attracts a lot of pollinators and if a pollinator is visiting the shrub it might decide to peruse the annuals that are underneath as well. So you have uh, increased visitation rates because of these positive interactions. So there's a, there's a whole suite of different uh, ones and the ones that are more commonly looked at is like shrub changes the physical environment, but there's all kinds of uh, indirect ones that happen as well, where a shrub impacts animal or impacts pollinator, impacts something else, and then that also helps the plants that are growing underneath their canopy. And so you're talking about shrubs that grow in the desert, and you mentioned some plants that are up in the alpine, and those are both very extreme environments. Does the extremeness, I guess, of the environment influence how much interaction there's going to be between these plants or how important the interactions are? Yeah, that, that's something I've been really interested in. Like, why is it that if you look at all the positive interaction researches in the alpine and in mountains, it has a certain trend. And that trend is the higher you are in the mountain, the more plants end up being closer together. But if you look at it in the desert, that trend isn't the same. As you get into incredibly hyper-arid areas, like, you know, big extremes such as Death Valley, you see the opposite. You see plants are actually starting to disassociate from one another. There's no clear reason why that's the case, because you have these two very extreme environments. They both are limited for different reasons. And usually the hypothesis, or what people propose for deserts, is that, yes, plants associate together, but at some point there's just so few resources, so little water, that it's impossible for plants to still stay together, and so what they might end up doing is disassociating. And I think that just has to do with the differences in limitations between the two. So deserts are water-limited, so that's the reason why, that like, 
if you have more plants together, they just end up sopping up more water, whereas the alpine is more uh, cold stress limited, so plants huddling together to stay warm is never a bad thing, I guess. When you think about two plants together, at least I usually think about that they're probably competing, like you said, for the limited resources. And so how does that dynamic work? Are they still competing while they're also benefiting each other in some ways? And and how often do the, the scales tip one way or the other? I think a lot of people think that uh, com- competitive interactions are what dominate a lot of plant interactions. It's what a lot of the research was up until the last like 15 to 20 years. People would only examine if you have two plants together, uh, how, does, how does one negatively impact the other? But when we talk about positive interactions, usually what we're thinking is that the net effect has to be positive. So yes, the shrub, let's going back to my original example, the shrub provides shade for that animal. That shrub is also probably taking some soil moisture and that annual plant might benefit overall though because Having the reduced heat stress allows it to grow like you know one extra inch higher, but having less soil moisture only makes it grow half an inch shorter, and so the net effect ends up being like half an inch positive. So that's what it, we end up classifying as a positive interaction. And like I mentioned with that, as you get more arid or as it gets drier, you get this shift where that negative becomes greater and that positive becomes smaller and Eventually, it switches over, and then you have no longer a positive interaction, but either a neutral, there's no net difference, or there's a negative interaction that's happening. Here in Moab, we are kind of at a semi-arid, cold desert environment. Would you venture a guess to say what the the dominant type of plant-plant interaction is in our region? That's a good question. I would guess mostly positive. There are probably smaller gradients that will shift it one way or another, especially if I'm remembering what right, there's like a lot of altitudinal differences all over the place. So that'll, that'll throw it in different areas. Like as you get uh, higher up, usually there's more soil moisture depending on where you're, where you're situated. And, um, that can end up favoring positive interactions because like I had mentioned, the soil moisture is the most limiting, which isn't really a surprise for most desert research, but yeah. In the more valley-like areas, particularly in areas that are hot, I would imagine they'd end up being more neutral or negative. But overall, I'd say the region has a, a tendency for positive interaction. Also, I believe it's mostly perennial-dominated. That's always an interesting dynamic because perennials, like when you have two shrubs interacting with another, they have a, they do different things than if you had a shrub and an animal interacting together. And all my research has been mostly in the Mojave, so I have a a particular perspective, I guess, on how two plants end up interacting with one another. We are a perennially dominated system, which means that the plants are here year-round. And we do have annuals, but most of our annuals are non-natives. Does the does whether or not plants evolve together change the interaction patterns? Is it kind of a co-evolutionary relationship, or is it just something that happens because of the greater abiotic environment and the stresses oh, there? Oh, yeah. Some coevolutionary dynamics to it. There was one particular person who had done some great research. I believe their name was Feliente, and uh, what they had shown is that positive interactions end up increasing plant lineages. So plant plant species that had would normally be extinct maybe a hundred thousand years ago or so extended 
into this, the current era as a result of positive interactions that allowed them to exist in environments that are getting drier or just, just different in general. And so positive interactions have this tendency to increase plant species richness over time. And so whereas some species would normally go extinct as a result of our changing climate, these planet directions maintain them. That was really cool. So there's a, there's definitely a co-evolutionary factor. I love, though, that you brought up the invasive species thing. So that's one thing I have noticed a lot of. And even how I mentioned with dandelion in the high Andes, you, invasive species love these little microclimates that positive interactions create. You have the shrub provides a lot of favorable conditions, like more soil moisture, more nutrients, more uh, shade. And so when you have a species that's really good at growing well, it, it capitalizes on these environments. And that's why I'll notice that like the Mojave is dominated by brome species, in the, mostly in the shrub relative to the open area. And the brome doesn't do so good on the inner spaces, but it does really good in the actual shrub. Also, Chismus, which is, uh, I think, from Spain, Mediterranean invasive. Uh, there's just many different species that end up taking advantage of these interactions. Can you describe to me how you study plant interactions? The first way it kind of inspired me to is uh, when I go into the field, these shrubs have these rings, these very characteristic, often called bullseye rings, where you have these plant species that grow in around the shrub. Uh, I have a great picture that I'm pretty fond of that I have a shrub, and on every different portion of the shrub, there's a different plant species, but it's super obvious. So like on the north part of the shrub, it's all yellow because it's a Lostenia. On the south side of the shrub, it's all this other plant species, so it's all purple. On the inside of the shrub, it's green. On the east side of the shrub, it's uh, bluish. So you have these micro-scale differences in the shrub, and so you have these different plant species that are appearing as a result. So it's super obvious that the shrub is having an effect, and so the next question is, like, why? Why is it that on the north side you have one species, on the south side you have a different species? Why is the open completely different? And so what we end up doing is we count up all of our species. We try and relate them to different areas. So say the north to the south, the shrub to the open. And then the next question is trying to solve that why. And that's where we start measuring um, the abiotic conditions. We start measuring interactions with other species, interactions with other plants. And so it's and then all the work comes into trying to figure out which combination of factors. Is it the fact that it's cooler but not really invaded and there's a cattle grazing in the same landscape? Is that the perfect mixture that creates this set of species on the north side? And that's pretty much what most of what my research has been about. Okay, let's let's pretend we're standing in Moab. And we're looking out over the desert, um, and you see the way that plants are placed and scattered, I guess, over the landscape. We know there are lots of different reasons that the plants are there, the specific plants that are there are there. How important would you say plant interactions really are when thinking about the whole landscape in determining what plant species are where and why? It's something I've been trying to tease apart myself. Like, if I were to put a number on it, like, was it, is it five? Is it ten? Like, how many, how many species would be absent if these interactions are missing? Or is there some other measurement? Like, is it, um, is it biomass? Is it, um, is it just rare species? Something like that. And this is, this isn't just my research. Other people have been looking at this kind of question too. Like, what is the one thing that would, 
be most impacted with or without positive interactions. I kind of got at that with this one paper I was working on where I was modeling annual species with and without positive interactions. And what I had kind of come up with was somewhere between about 5 and 10% of the area where species is present, like an annual species, would be less. So if a plant species is found one out of 10 times, it wouldn't be found there anymore because these positive interactions aren't affecting it. But that, that was a really kind of a coarse way of looking at it. I think it's more also a lot to do with the plant size. So the positive environment, most of these annual plant species grow in the desert. They've lived in the desert, so they can grow in the desert on their own. It's just that when they grow under the shrub, they grow much better. And so what you more likely see is um, one of the 10 areas that plant species will never be found, but where it's found, it would likely be found maybe a third of the time, and it would also be much smaller when you were to find it. But that's not true of all species. Like some species actually are the opposite. They avoid shrubs. They have a different set of characteristics. So yes, they are very important for our, the structuring of our communities. And it's hard for me to quantify exactly how much, but that's really something I've been interested in trying to do. And kind of just put a number on it, like how bad would it be if we lost these? And in some ways, it's hard to measure even just beyond that because there's so many cascading impacts. So shrub helps annual, the loss of that annual might mean loss of an invertebrate that relies on it for a forager as a pollinator, and then loss of that invertebrate might lose a mammal. And loss of that mammal might lose another plant species, and it can have this like reverse, what well, is a trophic cascade, but more from like a bottom-up perspective rather than the, the typical top-down top like uh, Yellowstone. So thinking about not just how the the plant community is structured, but the whole ecosystem is impacted by these interactions, potentially. Yeah, our lab's been working a lot on now a particular endangered lizard species, so the blunt-nosed leopard lizard in California, which is critically endangered. We, we found that the shrub helps the lizard by providing thermal regulation, but what we've been more interested in looking at is what else is the little lizard, and so what we've been showing is that shrubs help the grasshoppers by creating more plants. And so there's these four different players you have. You have shrub, helps annual, helps grasshopper, which helps lizard. And that's just one interaction pathway of shrub positively affecting this lizard. And it goes through three other species along the way. Now, if you imagine that in an ecosystem where there's so many different interactions happening simultaneously and interacting with one another, it could have a huge impact when you lose one of these facilitators. And so are these plant interactions um, considered when managing or restoring desert landscapes? We would love for them to be. And uh, I think they're becoming more relevant that there could be this del facto. If you build this, if you put in shrubs into the landscape, maybe it'll start, it'll kickstart some successional dynamics that'll restore areas that have been degraded. Particularly, this is of interest in California, where I believe they are retiring a bunch of agricultural land because it's not sustainable anymore because of the water deficit. So the question is, okay, if you know, hundred hundred thousand acres end up becoming conservation land, how do we turn them back to a desert when they currently look like an agricultural field? My supervisor and I had written this paper, kind of examining like how could we restore it 
back to desert, how could it be in favor of the critically endangered species that used to live there? And one of the key things is like, well, if you're going to revegetate the landscape, you have to start with shrubs. And putting shrubs into the landscape will be one of those initial successional things that you can do to try and bring in new species and kind of jumpstart the habitat back to the way it could have looked many years ago. Is it known how um, climate change is expected to influence plant interactions? So I had mentioned that as you get to the more arid areas, you lose a lot of these interactions. So we tried to do this large gradients of precipitation in California, and what we'd observed is that as you got more arid, positive interactions collapsed. And what we can imagine is that at least California is predicting to get more arid over time. There's going to be a shift is that gradient that we established. And so the sites that were super arid and had no positive interactions will probably go to be much worse in that they will just start losing species because there's just not enough water to support those ecosystems. Areas that normally had positive interactions will switch negative, and other areas that were relatively productive will become less productive, but there will be an increase in positive interactions, perhaps buffering some of those areas. It's a little interesting to see this like shift in gradients. Some people will be unfortunately surprised I'm interested in what got you interested in plant interactions. My parents were really great to me when I was growing up, and I got an opportunity to go out to Alberta and go through the Rocky Mountains, and I saw particularly the Columbia ice fields, and they were, they were enormous. They had these like tour buses. You get to drive on the tour buses and go over the ice, and it was super cool. And then uh, I did a field course many years later. We went back to those Columbia ice fields, and it was visibly apparent that the area where I stood with my parents like 15 years earlier was completely gone. Like it was no longer glacier. It was, it's all rocks now. And it's an, it was an enormous area that changed. It wasn't like, oh, this, this glacier receded five, cent, five centimeters. It was something like a hundred meters. Like it was enormous. And I was like, wow, that's wow. And so I was always interested in, um, outdoors things like, going camping and being just an outdoorsy kind of person. And then this made me think like, okay, well, I'm, I need to be more of a steward of the land and try and understand our natural environment a little bit better and try and make it more sustainable. From there, I decided that I'm most interested in how things interact with one another. I was never the kind of person to just like look at one plant for, you know, decades or particular insects, like I have a tremendous respect for all these people, but I, I was just more interested in how, like, why does one thing interact with another thing? Why do two things associate together? Why are these three plant species found in this area, but found in a different area? It's a completely different assortment. So those are the questions I was most interested in. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? Oh, that's a lot of things. Um, I'm super lucky and then I get to view a lot of great countries, so I get a lot of opportunities to go into deserts, to alpine environments, I get to see mountains. Getting to tour all over North America and studying these high-risk, high-stress systems is always something I'm very interested in doing, and it's a beautiful country, and I, I love doing that. I like that I'm actually contributing to some form of sustainability, trying to lessen the impacts of humans on the environment, and trying to preserve systems so that other people that are younger than me or in the future can hopefully have similar experiences to me and get to go camping and 
get to go outdoors and get to appreciate nature. And also, I think it's just it's something that I think that like we we need to do. So that's why I I enjoy doing being a scientist. I think that doing what I'm doing, I'm trying to help our society, and I I hope that I'm having a positive effect. I know I'm just like a small cog at a wheel, but I hoping that I have a contribution that is making our society better. Well, Alex, thank you so much for this interview. It's been so cool to hear about all thank of her, the work. Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. You can listen again to this interview with Dr. Alex Filazola at kzmu.org, iTunes, or Stitcher. Theme music for our show is written by Jeremy Spaulding. Funding is provided by the BYU Charles Red Center for Western Studies, and the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU.